Good morning, brothers and sisters. I had been struggling pretty much all week with this gospel reading, not because I didn't understand the individual components of it, but I didn't see how it all fit together. There, there are two main parts to this particular gospel. There's the first part in which the apostles ask the Lord to increase their faith, and then he tells them, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. And then he seems to change directions completely and point out to them that if you had a servant who was out working in the field all day, and then they came in, would you have them sit at table and serve them? No. You tell them to put on an apron to serve you dinner, they can eat when you're finished. And should you be grateful to them for their service? No. They deserve no gratitude because they only did what they were told to do. Jesus says that's the way you should be. So what do these two seemingly unrelated stories of our Lord have in common? The only thing that I can notice is authority. The underlying theme connecting the issue of faith and the size of the faith and the power of that faith. And the other story is authority. Obviously, Jesus says, if you have just a little faith, you'll have the authority to command a tree and it will obey you. Should you be grateful to the tree for being obedient to you? No, you have the authority. The authority belongs to you. You have it by right. And therefore, the tree has to obey. That's if you have authority over trees. In like manner, just because someone is your servant doesn't mean you owe them gratitude. And we're not talking about an employee. We're talking about a relationship between basically master and slave. They have to work for you. You own them. Now, what does authority have to do with faith? There is another story in the Gospels that you might remember when there was a centurion, a wealthy soldier, who had a slave who was very valuable to him, and he was sick, and he was dying. And he sent word to Jesus. He knew that Jesus could heal. He had the authority. He heard many stories, maybe even saw accounts of Jesus doing it. And so he asked for Jesus to come and to heal his servant. And when Jesus was on his way, he sent another servant and he said, no, Lord, I don't, I'm not worthy to have you come into my home. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. That's all you have to do. Just command it and it will happen. And so our Lord did, and the servant was miraculously healed at that moment. But the soldier said, all you have to do is command it because I understand the nature of authority, right? I tell my soldier to go do this, and he does it. I tell my slave to do that, and he does it because I've got the authority. All I have to do is command, and I'm obeyed. And in response to this statement, Jesus says to all the Jews around him, in all of Israel, I have never seen such faith. And this faith was from a Gentile, a non-Jew, a non-believer. And that faith was based upon his understanding of authority. It still might not seem clear, this connection between authority and faith. 
Faith, we know, is a gift of God given to us initially through baptism, the gift to believe. In what am I believing? In what am I putting my faith? I'm putting my faith in the authority and therefore the power of God. That's the connection. And even if I have just a little true faith in Jesus, in his power and authority, then I'll have more than enough. Now, we in this country struggle with the idea of authority. We don't understand it, which is why oftentimes our faith is weak. We think authority comes from the governed, right? I've I've preached on this before. The idea that we, the people, elect those who will rule over us, our leaders, and we give them authority. And that's just baloney. That's just not how it works. All authority comes from God. And when anyone has any authority, it's because it came from God. You and I can't give authority to anyone unless we already possess it. For example, if I choose some parishioners to catechize, to be catechists of your children, where did they get the authority to teach? It came from above. I gave it to them. Otherwise, they couldn't do it. Where did I get it? I got it from the bishop. He gave it to me when he laid hands on my head and ordained me and appointed me pastor of St. Dorothy's. Where did Bishop Jugis get it over the Diocese of Charlotte? From the Pope. Where did the Pope get it? From Christ. All authority has to come from God, even secular authority. Just because in this country we can elect our officials doesn't mean we give them authority. We simply choose the one to whom God will give authority to rule over us. But the reason in this country and in many others we resist that belief is because we want to hold on to the idea if I'm the one who gives authority, then I'm the one who can take it away. So I don't have to obey you. I take my authority back. Again, that's simply false. Whether I elected someone in government to rule over me or not, since I didn't give them the authority, I can't take it away either. And since I can't take it away, I can't choose to disobey on my own. First and foremost, in all things, right order and justice are what God expects of us. And if we don't understand how they work by his design, then how can we be expected to have faith since faith is based upon that premise? I can trust in the word of God because he has authority, he has power. Jesus proved this by his miracles. It's one of the reasons he performed so many. It's also the reason why he said to Thomas after he rose from the dead, blessed are those who have not seen these miracles and still believe. They didn't need supernatural signs to have faith in the fact that I am the Lord. And when I say something, it is true. It will happen. And that's what we heard in our first reading today from Habakkuk. The prophet was suffering because the word of God wasn't coming true, and the Lord said to him, what are you worried about? 
I said it, it's going to happen when I decide at the right time. Don't worry. Trust me. Believe in my word. Again, it comes down to belief. It's the same problem that parents have with their children. Especially when a child is fearful or suffering, you know, you want to console them, don't you? And so you try to tell them, everything's going to be fine. We're going to take care of this. You want them to believe your word. One, because you're smarter than they are and you're bigger than they are. And so it's more likely you can fix problems that they can't. So you want them to have faith in you and be consoled simply by the fact that they told you it's going to be okay. But if they don't trust you, if they don't have faith in you, then they will be continually disturbed by their own fears and anxieties. It's a lack of faith. And as adults, children, I'm not picking on you, adults, we do the same thing to God, who's our father. But even if God were not our father, we can still have faith in him. Because first and foremost, in regards to our relationship to God, we are his creation. He is master and Lord over us. We become so anxious and worried about the things of this world and the bad choices that people make that cause us suffering and our bad choices that cause others suffering. As if we are really in charge. As if what little authority we may possess can do any real damage or hinder the authority and power of God. How can I believe the word of the Lord that says I should have peace even in the midst of suffering. How can I believe that? Well, the question is, do you believe God or not? That's the real question. If you think God is a liar, then fine. Go on, continue to be anxious and worried and fearful of many things. Now, why does our Lord say to the apostles that even if you just have a little faith, you'll be able to say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and cast into the sea. The apostles ask for an increase of faith. Isn't more faith better than less faith? It would seem that way, right? I mean, if I've got a little and that's doing good, I'd like to have more. That's not what Jesus says. He's telling the apostles, he's telling us that you only really need a little faith. You don't need a whole lot. Well, what about those of us who do have at least a little faith? What's the problem? Why are we still struggling so much to trust in God? It's not because we don't have faith. It's got to be for another reason. And for a long time, I, I struggled to understand this. But then the Lord showed me that the, the problem I have with my faith is not that I don't have it, and certainly not that it's not great enough. It's that there's too much other junk in my mind that gets in the way of my faith in Christ. It's the same thing, again, a child does with their parents when you say, look, it's going to be okay, and the child immediately says, yes, but. Yeah, mom, dad, you can say that, but what about this? But what about that? They think in that moment that they understand something you don't understand. So they're going to overcome your reason, your logic, by their arguments. Again, we do the same with the Lord. We say, yes, fine, you're God, you're good, you love me, fine, I believe all that, but. 
and then fill in the blank with whatever you want to disagree with God about. Either he's God all-powerful and every word he says is true, or he's not. There's no middle ground here. So our difficulty with faith is not so much not having it, but our minds being filled with other things that are getting in the way. Remember when Jesus says, we are like the ground that needs to receive the seed of truth, the gospel truth that he wants to plant in our minds and hearts. But there's a problem with the ground because a lot of times there's rocks in it and seeds can't grow well, plants can't grow well when it's rocky soil. Or maybe there are weeds or plants that just are in the way. So what you have to do to make the ground fertile is you have to till it, pull up the weeds, remove the plants, the unwanted ones, and get rid of the rocks. In our own minds and hearts, there's so much junk in the way that it's killing the faith that's trying to grow day by day. I want to believe, but it's all of those buts. So how do I get rid of it? Well, first and foremost, you have to learn to avoid those things in your life that constantly lead you to doubt your faith in God. The news is a great one, right? How many times have parishioners come to me and said, oh, Father, I'm anxious and worried about many things, blah, 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 blah. And I always ask the question, do you watch the news? Oh, yes, Father, religiously. Oh, yeah. You need to stop watching the news. It's not helping you. He said, but I need to know what's going on in the world. Really? Really? You need to know what's going on in the world. Why? What good does it do you? How does it help you in any way except fill your mind with worrisome things that you can do nothing about? Well, I at least need to understand politics because, you know, I'm going to have to vote when the time comes. Really? You need to understand? I don't, I don't even care. Honestly, I just go on those Catholic websites and ask them, who am I supposed to vote for when the vote's up? They do the research. That's their job. I don't have to worry about it takes the pressure off of me trying to figure things out. I don't have the time for that, and I certainly don't want to be focused on it. God will give those professionals the grace to deal with it so as to give me the right information. Just, just make sure it's a good Catholic website, you know. I constantly fill my mind with the anxieties of things that are totally beyond my scope, my ability to influence. And then I expect God to give me peace about them. And the Lord says, no, I don't want you to know about them at all. You say, wait a minute, Lord. I mean, I have an intellect. I have a mind. Shouldn't I know as much as I can? And the only answer to that is to go back to Genesis. When the Lord created Adam and Eve. If you remember, original sin was that they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The knowledge of good and evil. That was the original sin that has tainted us all. Our desire to have knowledge, not just of good, but also of evil. Did you know God has no knowledge of evil? God doesn't know evil at all. Doesn't know it. The knowledge of evil doesn't exist in his divine mind. How is that possible when he's the judge of heaven and earth? When he can distinguish right from wrong? Well, the truth is actually very simple. 
since God is truth and therefore knows truth perfectly, anything that doesn't conform to that truth has to be non-good, therefore evil. So he doesn't have to know evil. He has to just know what good is. Our problem is that we know too much evil, not only by personal sin that needs to be confessed and removed, but also just filling our minds with all of the evil things that people do in the world. So one of the things that used to cause me the greatest distress in my life knowing all of the horrible things that people do and the horrible sufferings that others endure because of it. I used to have so much anxiety and fear and concern, especially when it was somebody I loved, somebody I was close to that was suffering or had suffered these things. And I kept thinking to myself, how could I ever find peace knowing that they're suffering so much, knowing the evil that was done to them? How could I ever find peace? Did you know that God, in his divine nature, always has peace? He's never disturbed when any of us suffer, regardless of what the evil is. One of my favorite subjects is Trinitarian theology, so it's understanding our God. And there's not really a lot that we know about God definitively, but there are certain things we do know for sure that the church teaches us came from Jesus Christ. Our God is three persons, one being. He has one intellect and one will. He's all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-good. He's eternal. And that he's simple. God is very simple. He's not complex. He's not composed of parts. And because he is perfect in himself, he cannot change. Since he cannot change and he's perfect in himself, he can't change just because you're suffering. Because he's already perfect. And if he's perfect, he's content. He's at peace within himself. Does that mean he doesn't care about you? No. It just can't affect him because he is the truth. And once I learned this, I was a little frustrated at first. I was like, well, that's a little unfair. I have to suffer over everybody else's suffering. Why don't you? The first thing we have to remember is that's why he sent his son into the world, so that he could know suffering so that we would have no excuse to get upset with him. God, you don't understand what I've been through. Oh, really? Look at my son. He suffered more than you, and he did so virtuously. Right? So we can't use that argument against the Lord anymore. But how could it still be a good thing that God is actually unmoved by our suffering? He is not moved by our suffering. Remember, nothing can move God. Only God can move himself. It's one of those basic theological truths. God chooses to be moved by our suffering, but he is not moved by it. And in like manner, when I am dealing with suffering in the world, it's one thing to choose to be moved by it, to be so weak, however, that it moves me. That's not divine. That's not holy. That's not what God wants. But what has to change in me so I can become more like God? that I'm not tossed about, as St. Paul often tells us, by the winds of this world, emotionally, intellectually, that I hold fast to the faith, that I'm grounded in it, planted in it. What I have to do is ask the Lord to remove from my mind 
all of the evil that I have learned over these years. So that in the end, there's nothing but truth. And yes, in removing this part of my knowledge base, my knowledge shrinks. It becomes small and pure and simple like that of a child. Why Jesus often tells us you have to turn and become like children. You think you're adults because you know so much. You have so much experience. That's the problem. That's your problem. That's my problem. Children are far more easily at peace with the circumstances in their life, even when they're suffering, precisely because they don't know as much as us, as adults. And our Lord says we need to be like that. All of that knowledge that doesn't help you maintain faith and peace, it needs to be gotten rid of. And if you don't really understand how children do this, I recommend you go to the cancer ward in a children's hospital. These children, suffering terribly, dying, a lot of them, knowingly, no depression, no severe anxiety. It's surprising the peace that they have. Why? Because they don't understand evil yet. But they were never meant to. All they have is the Lord and the love of their family. And for them, in that circumstance, that's enough. Is that enough for you and me? The love of the Lord and of your family. But we become so distressed, so anxious and worried because it's not enough for us. So one of the first things, one of the first practical things you can do in order to help purify your mind and avoid the evil is start limiting, if not removing completely, the amount of television you watch. The amount of radio you listen to, especially news or entertainment. I pointed out last night in the homily, and I, I noticed quite a few shocked faces, that in 1917, when the Blessed Mother appeared in Fatima, Portugal, to the three shepherd children, one of the things she told them was this, a prophecy. She said that in the future, Satan will put a black box in everyone's home through which he will speak to them. Blessed Mother said that in 1917. Now, of course, in 1917, no one had any idea what that meant, what that was going to be like. There were lots of interesting speculations. The Blessed Mother also said in Fatima that Satan has cast a web over the world to ensnare it. Web. Interesting. Many have said it's fascinating that that's what we call the Internet, the World Wide Web. And yet this media access that we have even on our phones, and you know this, is probably one of the biggest problems in regards to our faith in Christ because it fills our minds with so much information and knowledge that is hindering our faith. I'd say so much of the media is like the fruit of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord never wanted us to eat of it. All we have to do is know the truth, like a child in its simplicity. 
and everything else in life becomes far more clear. But it's a difficult temptation to resist the allure of multimedia. I speak for myself. I'm preaching to the choir up here today. I struggle with this too. It's very tempting. It's a good way to relax. When you're tired and exhausted, just veg out in front of the TV. But it's something we all have to struggle with and learn to resist more and more. I don't think that having a TV or a radio is an intrinsic evil. I'm not worried about that. But if it's not carefully governed and monitored, it will only do harm. And that's the same for phones. So parents, you need to have locks, electronic locks on your children's phones, on the televisions, and on the computers. You never give them free access. If you do, the rest is all your fault. I'm the one who has to sit in confession and hear everybody's sins. And so many of them could be avoided by avoiding those things being more careful at least with them. I've learned this from, from good parents who knew how to discipline their children rightly. If they did give them a cell phone, they didn't give them like free internet access on the phone. I mean, that's just too dangerous. It's giving a loaded gun to a child. And every evening at eight or nine o'clock, they took the phone, locked it away, and they didn't get it till the next day. They regularly checked up on their Facebook pages, their Twitter pages. They had complete and free access to everything that anyone looked at. Honestly, husbands and wives, you should do that with each other. Why should you have anything to hide? One of the number one ways that the devil gets us is he gets us to become so private that we're entrapped in our own sins because the people around us who could help protect us and defend us, we prevent. This idea of a right to privacy is not a God-given right. It's not a God-given right. Children, I'm sorry to tell you, none of you, not even teenagers, have a right to privacy. If you live in your parents' home, you have no rights to privacy because it's not your house. If you're paying rent, fine, you have a right to privacy in your room. We're not meant to be so private because we need the help of one another in order to avoid these temptations, these near occasions of sin. God never intended us to do it on our own. So for each of us, I encourage you to pray about this, to really bring this to the Lord, to ask your guardian angel, your patron saints, the blessed mother, our Lord, what should I do? How do I need to become more detached from this media? The things that fill my mind and negatively impact my faith so that I too can have the faith of a child, the faith the size of a mustard seed and have the peace and the joy of spirit that will come along with that purity. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit,